Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to our Life and Books and Everything listeners. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I am joined here, I'll say more about her in just a moment, by our guest today, Abigail Favali. I get that right? Mm-hmm, you did. Great. Very helpfully. She said, like, Favali ball, so thank you. <laughs> uh, I had a year ago, my wife was reminding me, I had Erica Bakiaki. so mm-hmm. I don't know, you uh, excellent... Catholic scholars with very creative last names. Hers is what? That's uh, Italian? And... They're both. Yeah, they're both Italian. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. right we, we will get into the book in just a moment. I want to thank our sponsors, Crossway, and uh, appreciate all the books that, that Crossway puts out. I don't, just for our listeners, I don't uh, tell Crossway what books to give me. They sponsor this and they say, can you mention this book? So I'm just reading what they printed out that I'm supposed to mention today, the new book by Kevin DeYoung, uh, Do Not Be True to Yourself, Countercultural Advice for the Rest of Your Life. So this is a very short book. It's just like 70 pages, and it's geared for graduates, high school, college, other young people, but really, hopefully, anybody can benefit from it. Do Not Be True to Yourself and kind of ties in with uh, Abigail's much longer, more erudite book that we're going to discuss in a moment. So you can check that out and pick it up. What I have learned, and you can feel free to to steal this life lesson, Abigail, what I have okay. learned about writing books is the way to get people to buy your books is to make them very, very short. <laughs> short, simple, catchy titles. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. that's that's what I have done here. So thank you, Abigail, for being here on Life and Books and Everything. We want to talk about her excellent book came out last year. It's really one of the best books I, I read last year, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, published by Ignatius. Abigail, welcome to Life and Books and Everything. Thank you. So tell us about yourself. You are a wife and a mm-hmm. mother of four. You teach at Notre Dame. Give us a little bit more about your bio and introduce yourself. Sure. So those are all accurate things about me that you just said. Um, Although the move to Notre Dame is pretty recent. We moved last year um, from Oregon, where I taught at George Fox University, which is a Christian school um, for the last 12 years or so. Um, I grew up evangelical Christian, reading a lot of Crossway books. I will say that. As soon as you said Crossway, I was like, oh. I had some of my favorite books as a kid uh-huh. were from Crossway. Um, yeah. And then I in, in graduate school, I got very interested in um, gender theory and feminist theory and took a bit of a hiatus from Christianity, you might say, and um, then had a reconversion um, into the Catholic tradition. And now I write from those same topics, but from a Christian perspective. So we're going to get much more into your biography, because your biography is interspersed here with what you were learning and how you were moving through your own waves of feminism, you say, in this book. But uh, so I'm, I'm a, a Presbyterian pastor. I'm an evangelical. So s- sorry to lose you, but, <laughs> but, but glad you're, you're, you're making steps back in, you know, in the mm-hmm. right direction, as, as we would understand it. So just tell us a little bit about that, your, your upbringing as an evangelical mm-hmm. and what led you to walk away from that, and Mm -hmm. why, when you came back to the Christian faith, uh, did you not step back into that same tradition, but came back Mm -hmm. into and became a Catholic? Hmm. Um, Yeah, that's a great question. So I, yeah, I grew up in evangelical Christianity in kind of the Mormon belt of the U.S., Um, and one of the, there are several things I'm very grateful for about my upbringing, and Two of those would be, first of all, just a very, from as my earliest memory, I lived a Christ-centered life, right? Mm-hmm. So you, I had a very um, simple but deep faith in Jesus and that um, I should give my heart to him. So, um, and also knowledge of scripture. So I had a very Bible-immersed childhood and spent a lot of time listening to stories about women in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. So... Um, that all helped form, I think, not only my spiritual life, but also my imagination. Um, so when I went to college, I became very interested in questions about women. Um, what is my role in the church? What is my place before God? Um, what am I called to do, right? There were times where I felt like I didn't see 
kind of a, a viable model for femininity in terms of the kind of person that I am um, in the tradition that I was raised. And so I was drawn immediately to feminism and I thought, this is what I've been looking for. Um, and initially, I kind of described, like you said, my, my personal waves of feminism and that initial wave was an evangelical feminism. So it was very much focused on how do we interpret scripture correctly in ways that um, really lend themselves to an egalitarian kind of reading. And so that's where I spent um, quite a few years when I was an undergrad. But by the time I graduated, I had really kind of moved into a more suspicious posture toward Christianity as a whole. So in in feminist theory, there's this phrase called a hermeneutics of suspicion, Mm -hmm. which is basically a way of reading everything, not just text, but certainly scripture, certainly tradition, um, with um, an attitude or posture of suspicion. So I had very much adopted that. So I kind of went from like, Scripture is God's word. We just need to read it correctly to actually scripture was written by men and we should be suspicious of it. And I think once I see that as a a really pivotal move from a posture of fidelity to a posture of position of suspicion. Um, and in that posture, I went more deeply into feminist and gender theory in graduate school. And even though I was still intellectually very interested in Christianity, I stopped practicing my faith. I didn't pray. I didn't go to church. Um I sometimes considered myself a Christian still, but it was just very nominal. Um, and then when um, I would say also that I adopted more of a postmodern kind of outlook, which basically is that um, I, I saw Christianity as a story, like a human made story that is trying to get some ultimate truth out there, that is trying to give us access to maybe some kind of divine reality that is ultimately unknowable, but it's flawed, it's full of patriarchal bias, and it needs to be kind of continually revised um, in order to, to be, to be life, life-giving. And so I had pretty much completely departed from the idea of a God who reveals himself, right? So a God who is actually making a lot of effort to disclose himself to us, right? Um, anyway, and then to, to fast forward, I guess, um, to my return to Christianity, um, that really was, I think, sparked by becoming a mother for the first time at, um, at the age of 29. Um, and that really opened me to God in a way. I think it, it kind of it pushed me out of that posture of suspicion um, enough to where I began asking questions that I just hadn't asked for a decade. Um, and then I very abruptly became Catholic <laughs> in that time because I, I had this, this hunger for the Eucharist. Really, yeah. um, and I saw in Catholic tradition, especially the f- the feminine genealogy of the faith and the the female saints, um, this kind of community of women, and it it actually fulfilled that longing I'd had since an undergraduate about trying to better understand what is my place as a woman specifically in the church. And so, since 2014, I've been I've been a Catholic and. Um, now, yeah, now I'm trying to bring my kind of insider knowledge of the feminist and gender theory world to help right. other Christians navigate um, our cultural moment. No, that's really helpful. Uh, is, so is your husband a Catholic? And was he at you were married at this point? And yeah. was this a, a welcome change when you became Catholic? Was he already there? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, so my husband was also raised evangelical, but he it was more intellectually honest than I was, I think. So he lost his faith and instead of becoming instead of staying in this like weird ambiguous space mm-hmm. where like oh christianity is a story and it's beautiful he was just like well if it's not true then to hell with it right and there's something i think honest about that right like either it's true or it's not and i kind of had right. this cognitive dissonance for years um so he when i became catholic he was an atheist and then um after I became Catholic, which was very much a, a pretty huge upheaval in our marriage, it was. Yeah, I'd say so. Especially because it was I was the one that changed, right? He didn't do anything. He was just kind of living his life, and then I was like, "Oh, by the way, I'm now going to adopt a belief system that's going to totally disrupt our marriage and our um, life." And but God has worked through that in in pretty incredible ways. But um, so my husband has experienced 
a very different kind. It's It's been fascinating to see how God's worked in his life very differently than he worked in mine, you know. Um, but yeah, so he's re- my husband has experienced also this reawakening of his faith. And, and he um, entered the church in 2020 in the middle okay. of COVID, basically. Yeah. Like when, when only like 10 people could go to mass, he was like, I'll join now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When yeah. there's, it's a very small crowd. Um, uh, so I want to ask you about becoming a mother. We're going to get to all the mm-hmm. heady intellectual stuff, but often overlooked in these discussions, and, and it's something that's really good about your book, is you're very uh, honest and upfront about how this shapes how we think about, in particular, these issues of sex and gender. How could we not think about who we are? And, and you're writing, not just for women, but you're obviously writing as a woman, and you're writing for mm-hmm. women, and thinking about the change. So what, how, how was your, what changed when you became a mother, because mm-hmm. it's easy to think with any of these books. For you know, you have a, you know, have an impressive PhD, impressive intellectual pedigree. It's it's impressive whenever we, or it's easy whenever we have these intellectual conversations to think we're talking about just it, just brains and vats somewhere who just read great books yes. and think of ideas, <laughs> and they don't really have their own personal life, or they may not be motivated to defend things in their own personal way of doing things, or they're not affected by the way things happen. I mean, one of the things in, you know, our my evangelical tradition, and you're familiar with it, and thinking about uh, biblical manhood and womanhood, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's just sort of described in complementarian circles, like, okay, men and women, there's just a couple of things. Sorry, women, here's the bad news. There's a couple of things. You can't be a pastor. you got to submit to your husband. And it's just, like, bad news, but just you're going to swallow it because you believe the Bible, and sorry, there's a couple of things that don't seem fair. Uh, rather than thinking, you know, with all of the, the pain that, of course, comes with it as a part of the fall— there's, you know, some some women have said to me, now, Kevin, don't be so apologetic for us. We get to do something that's really amazing, like incubate human life and give birth to new people on the planet. And uh, my my wife is amazing in what she does. And sometimes I say, I'm sorry for for ruining your life that you have nine kids. But then I, you know, say I don't really mean that, of course. Uh, and I think she would say she's blessed in that. But I know, you know, she loves to hear birth stories, mother mm-hmm. stories. She's just drawn to it in a way that, you know, she's surprised even that that she she is and and always wants to hear it. So if she were here, she'd want me to ask you in particular. You don't have to give the, the blood and guts about mm-hmm. the birth story unless you want to. But tell us, <laughs> how did becoming a mother change you? Yeah, I I relate to that so much. It's so interesting. I love hearing birth stories too. And there there seems to be almost this like um have kind of default feminine ritual. You know, I've been in so many situations where suddenly in a circle of of women of mothers were like and now we're all sharing our birth stories, you yeah, know? Right. There just seems to be this like because I think it's it is su- it is an experience that has no analog, really. Mm-hmm. And you you can't understand it until you've gone through it. And I feel like it, it, in kind of more mythic or poetic terms, it is like this descent into the underworld. And then you emerge <laughs> this new person with another person, right? It's yeah. like, it's anyway, it's incredible. So for me, I think what, what really made motherhood a catalyst of my conversion, I think, is that um, I, I, let's see, I would, I would highlight kind of maybe three things. Um, first, I, there, the experience, I think, confronted me with the limits of um, the feminist ideology that I had really adopted, that had kind of become my religion. So one, the first limit, I guess, that I, that I encountered was pretty early in my pregnancy. So at 12 weeks, I had an ultrasound, which you don't normally have an ultrasound at that time. Usually you have an ultrasound at the very beginning when there's like a tiny little jelly bean in there and then then you then you have like the mid-pregnancy ultrasound where it's like oh there's a there's a leg and there's Mm -hmm. a head you know and it's kind of like abstract and um but at 12 weeks it's kind of an amazing time to have an ultrasound actually so it's still in the first trimester so it's right at the tail end of the first trimester 
but you have this fully formed human being. Like it's unambiguous. It's not a weird fish thing. It's not a jelly bean. It's, it's not an like, alien looking thing. Yeah. It is like a baby. And but they're small enough that you can see the entire body on the ultrasound. And so I saw my son on there and I remember his brain. It just looked like cauliflower, you know, and he was like sucking his thumb. He mm. was kicking and they have so much room at that stage, too. And yeah. he was like spinning around. And and that to me was honestly shocking because even though I think I'd always had some, um, you know, some ambivalence about the pro-abortion aspect of feminism, I had certainly thought that like first trimesters, you know, there's nothing in there. There's no person yet. Right. Like you might have a potential person, but there's no first there's right. no person in the first trimester. So that was like, boom, that is a person like that is a human, full fledged human being. And he is freaking alive in there, you know, so that spinning around. in my Yeah. Bed. So yeah. that was like that confronted me with the poverty of that narrative mm. and the falsity of that narrative. Right. Like, that's just a lie to say yep. in the first trimester, there's not a human person in there. Like I was like, OK, that's a lie. So that was disruptive. Um and then after I actually gave birth or just ex the experience of like pregnancy and childbirth and lactation, you know, in gender and feminist theory, there's kind of this naive cliche about, well, gender is a social construct, right? So the, the implicit belief is basically that men and women are interchangeable, but society polarizes them into these like super different creatures. There's some truth to that, I'll say. But I think when I experienced the full activation of my generative potential, I was like, whoa, sex is real. <laughs> you know, like yeah. Michael and I, like my husband's name is Michael. And um, and we have a pretty like in terms of just roles and duties in the house, you know, we've we've always had a pretty egalitarian um, dynamic. But once I once I became a mother, it was like, oh, we had these very real bodily realities that we had to we had to deal with. Right. So. Yeah. Um, this child's got to eat. Exactly. And so that was kind of like, okay, wow, like sexual difference is, is real. And it's not just this metaphor. It's not just this like beautiful story. It's like really profoundly real. And it shapes our lives in ways that I think can remain hidden um, in, in some ways, especially in our kind of laptop culture where um, sexual difference and dimorphism doesn't seem like that, right. that it shapes our lives that much. So that would be the second thing. Um, and then the third thing I think I, I was, my first child was a son. And becoming a mother to a son specifically, I just became really interested in what boys go through. Like, what is, you know, I had focused so much of my own kind of personal journey and career on the experiences of women. But this opened me, I think, in a new way to what is it like to grow up as a boy in our culture? Like, what burdens mm. um, or bad scripts are given to boys and to men or w what ways are their dignity undermined, right? So all of these things, it didn't like instantly make me this anti-feminist, but it just kind of made me seek elsewhere because it was like, ah, this, I had these questions and this, this feminist religion I'd adopted is too small to answer them, right? And so I, I had to like, I had to search elsewhere. Um, and I also just think that like, I was confronted with my own limits Right. I mean, feminism tends to have this. You can have it all. You can do it all. Yeah, Don't let anybody put any constraints on you. Yeah. Like be whatever you want to be. Well, actually, we're very constrained by our nature. Right. And so um, autonomy is often a prized virtue or maybe the most prized mm -hmm. virtue in feminism. And so going through this really intense experience and realizing the interdependence of all human nature that also, again, shifted me away from, I just was like, this isn't enough. This, this, this small, this worldview has gotten too small and I, I need any dancers elsewhere. So yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And one of the things I think you hit, uh, hit on this dynamic later in the book, even with the sort of second wave feminism, and I'll ask you in a, in a bit to explain some of these waves, but where it, escape from the the surly bonds of domesticity, to use the, you know, to import Reagan into feminist, which is sort of <laughs> odd. But to, to escape those bonds means you're the career woman and free from just the drudgery, the Betty Friedan sort of understanding of what it means to be at home. You know, one of the ironies is if, if, if a, a, a feminist has children and then is going to still do it all, someone's going to care for the child— and who's going to do it? Well, almost certainly it's not men. It's it's other women mm -hmm. 
who are either with their own children at home who are trying to earn money or who don't have children, who are going to be paid probably a relatively meager wage to care for children. Now, that's not to, to shame everyone out there who may have no other choice. And, you know, there's lots of different ways that we can, you know, have to make those decisions. But it's just to say that someone at some point will have to care for children if we're any sort of humane society. And no matter what our very esoteric theories say, human nature reasserts itself, and it's almost certainly going to be women doing the bulk of caring for these children. As much as we we certainly want fathers to be responsible, and I'm on the, you know, I'm engaged with all of my kids and making really cringy dad jokes and doing all the rest. In fact, yeah. I was speaking um, at our uh, our high school baccalaureate because our church has a, has a school, and I usually do that each year. And uh, my kids who are in high school, my teenagers said, Dad, um, can you just run by us if you're going to try to make any pop culture references? <laughs> Because, uh, and I was like, you know what, I'm really, I was going to make my main point just about the the Taylor Swift eras tour. Like, Dad, please, no. I said, I'm just kidding. I don't know anything about that. So, uh, yes, I try to do the the requisite dad things. But how did you, how did you find these conversations when you were in these spaces, which were for a, quite a long time, you, you you talk about, I think it was your master's, not quite your doctorate work, where you said you were an oddity, even though you were mm-hmm. really on board with this feminist, you know, intellectual theory, you were in a heterosexual marriage. Mm-hmm. And if not religious, you said you weren't not religious. And right. this was very strange where you said mm-hmm. most of the, the women in the program were were just floating between different lesbian relationships. It, it, right. uh, how odd was it for you in that atmosphere? And do these very practical, nitty-gritty sort of discussions come up in those circles? No, it's so fascinating how detached a lot of feminist theory, and certainly gender theory, absolutely gender theory, it's remarkable how detached it is from the phenomenon of motherhood at all. You know, I have, here's an interesting illustration. This was like, I don't know, I want to say 2014, around-ish. So it was after my conversion. No, it must have been like 2015. I went to the AARSBL, you know, the American Academy of, you know, this like Uh huge convention of all the, um, of all the religion Bible scholars in the, around the world, really. It's a crazy gathering. It's a crazy, lots of tweed, lots of (laughs) tweed. Yeah. Um, so I went there and there was like a, a long, like two hour or something panel about feminism and Christianity or whatever. So I was like, oh, I wonder what they're going to talk about. Oh, it was about sexuality. It was like feminism, sexuality and religion. And so I went there and in the entire two hours and you had panelists from all kinds of different traditions like Buddhism, the whole gamut of Christianity. Um, not a single person even mentioned as an aside that sex might result in pregnancy mm. for women. It was fascinating. I was sitting there and I was like, at what point is anyone going to even mention that like, well, this might happen, you know, like yeah. especially two women. So it was it was really fascinating how, in a sense, sterilized mm-hmm. the feminist imagination is. It's it's almost like and this is one of my now critiques of feminism is that it's it's basically adopted a bias toward the masculine in that what what really oppresses women is their femaleness. It's the capacity for pregnancy. It's their fertility. And so in order for women to be free, to be liberated, to be successful in society, they essentially have to be stripped from their femaleness. They have to function in the world as much like men as possible. And so feminist theory has really adopted that so much as an ideal that um, now there are exceptions to this. There are exceptions to feminists who are very much concerned about um, this phenomenon and who have much more like family centered mm-hmm. kind of like Erica Bakiaki, for example. Right. Um, but people like her, people like myself, you know, we don't represent the mainstream. And the mainstream still has that, um, I would say, has bought into that, to that framing. So it doesn't talk about motherhood, or it's seen as something that's like oppressive, and we need to kind of limit it, or it shouldn't be imposed upon women, right? It's always seen as this kind of like, this oppressive force um, that needs to be tightly controlled, right. that women need to be able to opt out of at any moment. Heaven forbid that it might 
actually be life-giving, literally life-giving, but also with all of the pain and drudgery and all of that's real, it can actually be very life-giving for, for women. And there must be, a, was there a sense that if, if someone actually wanted to be a mother or was going to enjoy being a mother, that you just couldn't even talk about that? Um, no, I think so. I mean, in the, in the, in the program I was in, it was very, so theoretical. I mean, it was just like up in the clouds. Yeah, you no said really at one point you realized, I think I'm just making stuff up. Oh, totally. That was when I was writing my <laughs> dissertation. And I'd be like, gah, 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 and then all of a sudden I would look up and be like, I'm just making this up, right? Yeah. Like it's just language games, um, essentially. Anyway, now in more casual conversation, sure, you know, mm-hmm. there would be, I think that would be maybe a more typical, th- there would be the line of like, well, you know, of course, like if a woman wants to do this, if she chooses to do that, that's fine. She should be able to choose it. But there was still always this kind of implicit like, but that's a choice that's like, you know, yeah. kind of like, it's kind of a sellout, you know. Right. Um, so it, I, I would say that it was always devalued. It just depends on like to what extent and how explicitly or implicitly. But most of the time it was just forgotten. It was like, and this is very explicit in gender theory, which completely forgets and actively tries to dismantle generativity, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Judith Butler, who's one of the, the probably the godmother, really, of, or the godless mother <laughs> of, of gender theory. She's not a mother, um, but yeah, right. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. she is. But um, yeah. yeah, so she um, she's very explicit about the fact that um, she her, her philosophy is all about denaturalizing heterosexuality. And she even at one point in one of her texts, she warns feminists who are critical of like surrogacy. She's like, ah, be careful about criticizing surrogacy because you might accidentally um, naturalize the idea that it's women who get pregnant. You know, so it's like that's mm-hmm. for her. It's always an oppressive construct. Like we have to be free from our nature, essentially. So, yeah. so say a little bit more about uh, we're j- jumping to. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, because Judith Butler is you said looms large in all of these discussions in her book Gender Trouble, but there's there's others as well. So who is she? Why is she so uh, influential such that anyone who's in any sort of gender program or gender studies is reading Judith Butler and canonized almost, uh, even though you, you point out here at one point she you know won an award from The Guardian on the most impenetrable sentence prose, uh, yeah. which, which just... It isn't to pick on her, but just does say something about what you said, these language games you throw in post-structural as hegemony and you just, so who is she? Why is she, what, what's her big idea? Why is she so important? And right. uh, what's, what's her personal, personal aim? You say at one point she wants to deconstruct every norm related to sex and gender, and that gets to mm-hmm. incest, to everything, mm-hmm. and, and dismantle heteronormativity. Is this a personal project for? Give us a little pricey on Judith Butler and why she's important. Okay, so her big idea, I guess, um, and to just contextualize her in kind of the arc of feminist theory. So I'll do this super quick. Yeah, give so, us the waves. Okay, so when we talk about feminism having waves, the first wave is really the the battle for women's suffrage, so the vote. And that ha- that kind of starts at the end of the 19th century and really peaks um, in the early 20th century and then goes dormant, right? So women who were active in that struggle, they were not wanting to dismantle the system. They did not want to um, push women out of the domestic sphere. This Rather, is Erica's point. With, yes. with Mary Wollstonecraft. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it was more about we, you know, and it was very liberal in the sense that it, 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 it was working within the political system of liberalism that the United States is founded in, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, it's a liberal society in that sense. So it was about like giving women access to rights and protections um, in, within that system. Um, and it still was very... I think virtuous in the sense that they were the first wave feminists were concerned about family planning, but their solution for that was um, men controlling themselves. It wasn't about women changing their bodies, right? So there was like the birth control movement was kind of starting at the same time as um, first wave feminism, uh, but it they were not yet allied. 
Right. And so that alliance was, oh yeah, go ahead. I was yeah. just going to say, Erica makes this point looking at uh, Mary Wollstonecraft that one of her big critiques is to point out the double standard between men and women, that men were excused to be promiscuous and not be involved in domestic affairs. And it, it, to some degree, feminism has always pointed out that inconsistency, and yet those, those at least some of those early wave feminists were saying, hey, that's an inconsistency. You know what? The answer is not that women become more like promiscuous men. The answer is that we hold men to a standard of sexual chastity as mm-hmm. well. And yes. so that's a very different solution to a perennial problem than we find as the wave rolls on to second and third wave feminism. So sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, super different too, because the the virtue-based approach presumes that we're actually working in harmony with our nature. And in fact, we're making it flourish, right? Because virtue is human excellence, right? Mm-hmm. So to grow in the virtue is to become a better human. Whereas the solutions of contraception and then abortion, those are about trying to conquer our nature that actually unleashes our will and our desires and kind of forgoes the need for virtue anyway. So in the second wave, which was uh, late 60s, but mainly the 1970s, that's when you see this alliance of the abortion movement, the acceptance of, of contraception. Um, and that's when I would say that feminism really began to adopt that implicit masculine bias where basically femaleness is scapegoated mm-hmm. um, for for what oppresses women. And so second wave feminists had this idea, um, they made this distinction between sex and gender where sex refers to biology, so I'm my femaleness, mm-hmm. whereas gender is a social construct. So woman is more of a fiction created by society and it's oppressive construct that we need to break free from, right? But sex is real and we need to kind of deal with that. That was kind of the second wave view. So Judith Butler, who begins writing on this in the late 80s, but really becomes prominent in the 90s, um, her big idea is basically to say, not only is gender a social construct, but sex itself. Hmm. So our categorization of human beings into two sexes that are complementary um, in terms of biology and personhood is a social fiction rather than a matter of fact. So what she basically does is she says everything's gender. Like uh, sex, yeah. even sex itself is gender. Everything's gender. And that is a um, an oppressive construct that's put upon us by society. And so our role then is to basically be gadflies. It's to kind of rebel against this construct. And she she actually has a very kind of pessimistic view of how much human beings mm. can do that. She has a very like, you know, social power has a hugely determining impact on us. So the best you can kind of do is to, to play with gender, to queer gender. Um, you can't necessarily overthrow it, but you can kind of constantly contest it. Like, kind of like to rip off the mask, basically. She's right. like, okay, gender's, you know, gender's just this illusion. Uh-huh, just performative... Exactly. It's a performance. You're playing. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It's basically drag. It's kind of, and she makes this analogy, you know, that what's, what's, um, revolutionary about drag, she argues, is that it reveals that all of gender is drag. We're all performing drag all the time. Anyway, so that's her big idea. Um, and yes, I would say that basically gender theory and gender studies, I would say, is applied Judith Butler. It just Mm -hmm. takes her theories as truth. And then kind of analyzes different aspects of culture in light of those theories. Um, so it's you can't really go away, get away from um, Judith Butler when it comes to her influence, I guess, in gender theory. Let, let me uh, read back to you one of your definitions here. What's really good, we're talking with Abigail about the genesis of gender. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and uh, what, what, what you do really well, you interweave your own story uh, in contrast to some of the uh, impenetrable prose, you write very well, and you explain very complicated, often uh, ill-defined terms, and you do it very well. So, for example, you say about postmodernism is the worldview that sees reality as narratives created by human beings rather than an order of objective reality discovered by human beings. That's a that's a really helpful people can understand that. Obviously there's lots of complications and you know French philosophy in there, but that that's at the heart of it. You say later this is really good uh, divine so this is the alternative. 
Christian view, divine speech makes reality, human speech identifies reality. Mm-hmm. And postmodernism inverts that. Well, there is no divine speech. Human speech simply makes yes. reality. And then to get to gender paradigm, which you've just laid out very well, you say, according to the gender paradigm, there is no creator, and we're free to create ourselves. The body is an object with no intrinsic meaning. We give it whatever meaning we want, using technology to undo uh, what is perceived to be natural. We do not receive meaning from God or about our bodies or the world. We impose it. So you say later that without—I mean, this is not exaggerated rhetoric— you rightly point out that that gender paradigm is godless. What what do you mean in saying it's godless? That may sound like just a, you know, a Christian mm-hmm. shot across the bow, yeah. but it it's actually a a factual statement. What do you mean? Yes, I mean that the role of creator has been up has been kind of excised, and that human beings take that role, right? So, in a God full reality, you have a ground of all existence. You also have a ground of all meaning. And that means that human beings are creatures rather than creators, right? But if you get that God out of there, then in a sense, it's human beings who then take the role of being God, right? So it's we then get to decide the terms of our existence. We get to decide what meaning our our body has. Um, we get to use a language in a way that constructs the kind of reality that we want mm-hmm. to have. Um, so if you look at like kind of the role of God, especially in um, the Genesis creation narratives, and then the role of the human individual in um, the gender paradigm, they, they they basically serve the same role, right? So it in the gender paradigm, human beings aren't creatures, we don't have we don't receive the meaning our exist the fact of our existence and the meaning of our existence from God um, but there is no meaning aside from what we assign things right so yeah and you talk about this that one of the worst things you could be in feminist theory is an essentialist mm-hmm. someone who believes that there's an essence a nature there's an isness and yet talk about the the, the inconsistency or certainly seeming inconsistency with the trans movement, which the, the T has been put on the L, G, and B, and whether it, it they actually go together or not. But there's an implicit essentialist narrative mm-hmm. when someone says, well, I'm a, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm really mm-hmm. a man, though my body assigned at birth was female. That That's an essentialist narrative that says there is... In essence, it's not just performative. You really have a maleness or a femaleness. What they're turning on its head is whether it's given or whether it's it's biological or it's some sort of internal uh, sense of being. So talk about how does that mm-hmm. essentialist narrative get undermined and how does it keep reasserting itself? Yeah, so this is such a fascinating question that has really perplexed me because if you think about the gender theory, according to Judith Butler that I just described, she is completely anti-essentialist. Mm-hmm. So her theories actually do not jive well with some of the transgender anthropology or the narratives about trans identities, which do assert an essence, right? So I've been thinking, I've been thinking, how did we get from there? How did we get from basically gender is a social construct to Gender is profoundly real, and it's this yeah. inner sense of identity that, in fact, could be at odds with my socialization. Because mm-hmm. those are two very different concepts, right? There's this implicit contradiction there. Um, and so one of, one of the things that I think has happened is that Judith Butler's work and then how it kind of metastasized through culture, it really sw- clears the deck of sexual difference, right? It kind of basically says, look, sex is a construct, or we don't have to really take seriously mm-hmm. The idea that that men and that maleness and femaleness is grounded in reality, right? But what's interesting is that I think human beings are, you know, it's like Aristotle says, like all human beings by nature desire to know. And we we intuitively see that they're that the world is real and we want to make claims about what is real, right? So I think kind of two things are happening. One, I think for probably most people we have this intuitive sense of essentialism to claim that things are real, right? Most people aren't hardcore 
social constructionists. Like most people won't be like, yeah, everything's a construct. So you do have those ideologues, right, who are who are like, yeah, everything's a construct. So right. I'm going to assert that I'm male. And just by asserting it, that means it's true, right? Because language makes reality. But then I think for a lot of people, it's actually much more, um, it seems much more possible that there is this kind of sex of the psyche or even the brain, as it's sometimes put, that is at odds with the the sex of the body and that that's the real essence of who someone is, right? So basically, I think gender theory created this gap. And then this idea of what I call gender identity theory has kind of snuck in to fill that gap. Um, but it wouldn't work without that denaturalizing effort, that like eclipse of the reality of sex and basically supplanting the idea of human nature altogether. So how are, because you go on, you talk about Judith Butler, and then you talk about Kimberly Crenshaw and the advent of intersectionality. And it's easy to think all of these things are just, especially if you're a conservative Christian of some kind, you can just think these are all progressive ideas that are out there. They're all kind of the same. They're all kind of on the same team. Until you get into the weeds of it, you realize, well, there's some pretty significant difference, and they don't all see the mm-hmm. same thing. And, and that's true with intersectionality. So Give us a, a, a layman's level, laywoman's level of uh, explanation of intersectionality, and does it fit with Judith Butler's project? Hmm. Sure. So uh, intersectionality is basic, I mean, at, at its most basic level, like when Crenshaw first started writing about it, it is the idea that um, our, there's, there's similarly this idea that human identity is primarily constructed by society. Mm-hmm. And so people who inhabit different kinds of identities that are constructed by society, such as race and gender, they have this intersectionality, or, or in other words, the constructs kind of intersect in a certain way. Um, so that way you can't just talk about women. You have to also take into account the category of, say, race or class. Um, so it's this, it's this like, basically this precision, right? The way in which these different identity constructs overlap, especially in the life of a particular person or a particular group of people. Now, Crenshaw was talking very narrowly, at least in her first article, where she introduces this idea about legal discrimination. So she's a legal scholar. So she's basically like, look, we can't just talk about sex discrimination and racial discrimination. We have to look at the ways in which for, say, black women, both kinds of discrimination can intersect in their lives, right? So the basic idea actually is, you know, I think it's a helpful analytical tool, especially when we're thinking about law um, and, you know, to think about, oh, yes, that's true. There are ways in which our identities intersect. Intersect. Right. <laughs> I also talk about intersect. Yeah, exactly. uh, anyway. oh, I'm going to ask you about that yeah. a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um But one of my critiques of intersectionality or intersectionalism, Mm -hmm. maybe as an ideology, is that it actually is blind to the ways in which intersectionality, for example, affects groups that are seen as privileged, right? So I think I give this anecdote in the book where I'm like biking home from my posh academic job. You know, clearly I have a healthy body because I'm biking. I'm about to go home to a warm house with you know, dinner and a healthy family. And I pass this man who's like limping really hard and going the opposite direction. And my guess is that he's probably just gone to the the free supper at our parish, which is nearby. And so he's a white man, right? Mm-hmm. So in intersectionalism, he would be cast as privileged, like top of the hierarchy, yeah. right? But he's limping. He's, like, he's clearly like physically disabled. He, you know, class-wise looks very like someone who's really poor and who needs to go to a free meal at a parish. So like intersectionalism can't really compute how that person Mm -hmm. actually is far more oppressed, you might say, than myself, right? This woman. So I think it's the, it's the kind of um, the hierarchy that is built out of intersectionality as a basic idea into this ideology that's the problem because it actually blinds us right. to certain kinds of of oppression um yeah. such as you know just by like oh we don't even need to care about white men well like what about this white man <laughs> right like who right. clearly um yeah so that's that's kind of my critique no, of, that's helpful of, and you talk about that in the book that often 
the class is maybe given sort of uh, oh, yeah. a, a wave, but really, there's the word wave again, different kind of waves. Yes, but, yeah, like a hand yeah, wave. A hand mm-hmm. wave. But really, it's it's usually people who we would say are very privileged with their academic training, with the jobs they have, who are discussing these sort of things, and who have, to use the language, lots of class privilege, but that often doesn't come in. One, one of my critiques, I'm not a, you know an expert in critical theory or intersectionality, but your point is there can be just some common sense helpfulness to remind us that people have multiple sort of factors in their life, and they may even be, you know, in different ways discriminated against in different levels, and they may intersect. So that's, that's a fine observation. One of my critiques is it's a very modern, or you might say postmodern, truncated set of identities. Mm-hmm. That you so people say, well, even sometimes I get this as a as a reformed as a Calvinist who believes in total depravity. Well, shouldn't it be our position? We we believe that people are inherently sinful, and so shouldn't we un- expect that people in power tend to oppress people who don't have power? And I say, yeah, we we should not be surprised to see that. One of my criticisms, however, is that pow- who has power, who doesn't have power. That access is not just a straight line from these three race, sex, gender orientation down to the people who have a different kind of race, sex, gender orientation. There's lots of ways to have power. Um, you know, athletic ability, uh, victimhood confers a certain kind of power. So the intersection and the the DEI sort of way that we need to show to people, we need to give a representation of what the world is like. Sounds very good, but it's impossible to achieve, and it's almost always a truncated list of identities. For example, when our kids went to the public school, and they go to our Christian school now, but I was on our our public school's sex education committee, which was like ground zero for—there was still a law in Michigan when we lived there. I think it's still on the books, but uh, a law that you needed to have a clergy member on your district's sex education committee, just a holdover law that was still there. Now, wow. they almost always got very liberal clergy members who volunteered for this, but somebody, I think it was a Mormon somewhere in the administration, was like, psst, psst, come here. I hear you, Mike. Do you want to be on this? <laughs> and uh, in that sort of environment, I'd see somebody who was a Muslim, and I'd think, oh, this person's going to be an, an ally. This person's going to be maybe be on the same page. But I remember you know, getting these arguments in this group and it would be, we need our, our sex education curriculum needs, we don't want anybody who's in the classroom to feel like their kind of family is left out. So we need to have more examples of lesbian couples. We need to have, you know, threesome couples. We need to have lots of different LGBT. We need to have a trans couple family. Okay, well, there's lots of reasons why I wouldn't go with that. But one of the most obvious is for all of the talk of representation and the intersection of these identities, I'd say there's nowhere in any of this sex education curriculum that anyone ever goes to church. You never have anyone who has a big family. I mean, so Mm -hmm. there are lots of people who you are not thinking to represent. So it sounds very good. Mm -hmm. We want to represent all people in our district, but it really falls short of that. How do you think... What, what sort of, let, let's move just a little bit. We got maybe just 15 minutes left. What are things that we can do? Because we don't, you know, it, we want to understand and we want to rightly criticize. What are things on the positive end? If people are listening mm-hmm. to this and they go, wow, Abigail, this is really good. You're really helpful. I look out in our world and I see, you know, trans influencers on Bud Light and, uh, you know, it's so ridiculous on a lot of levels. One of them is for it, it is the essentialist narrative because you have Dylan Mulvaney saying, well, I'm, I'm performing as a woman, but it's the most over the top stereotype of what a girl would be just enamored with pink everything. It's just you say in the book, all we have left then if we don't have any biology, all we have are stereotypes. What are you doing positively in uh you know, it could be an intellectual way. It could be just living your life to try to push back on this paradigm, which is, as you so rightly say, godless. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, I think, where my work is really focused right now at the moment. Um, so I think one 
one helpful distinction to make is between the paradigm and the framework which we do need to critique mm-hmm. and the people like the individual human right. person who might for whatever reason identify into that framework right so we can't forget the the dignity and the immortal soul of that person that needs god's love right that's we can't as christians we just can't forget that right um and so I think making a distinction between those two things is really important. So this book, in many ways, is focused on a kind of articulation and critique mm-hmm. of that framework, which I do think needs to happen, right? But then it's important to remember that the individual person might not even consciously believe all of the things right. that the gender paradigm asserts, right? So, um, I mean, I think some, like I think about the language in Genesis when the fall first happens, and the first thing that the man and the woman do is they hide from one another, right? And I think in in many ways, the gender paradigm has provided Western culture with another way of hiding hmm. from the truth of who we are, another way of hiding from the truth of our sexual identity. And so when it comes to the level of the person, it's about like what's, you know, like when you're accompanying someone or just getting to know someone, like figuring out what's going on in this person's heart? Like what what about them? Why are they seeking refuge here, right? Because there's a... There's a certain, you know, it's it's meeting some kind of need mm-hmm. or addressing some kind of wound, right? Um, so it can't we can't just move from like critiquing the framework to then a rejection of the people who are, especially I think who are still trying to, you know, who are still drawn to Christianity, but also have um, found in this framework some kind of explanation for their experience. So we need to meet the person, um, and I think. If I were to kind of distill the problem that's happening is like we've forgotten to listen to the voice of nature and the voice mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the voice of nature here, I don't mean like the trees. I mean the, our nature, that we have human nature. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is true about intersectionalism, right? It's a denaturalized view of the human person. Um, it sees the human person as like just kind of a an, something that's externally constructed by society. Um and I think we then need to resist those kinds of narratives and return to an understanding of human dignity. So mm-hmm. all human persons share in this common um, human dignity. There is also the level of, you might say, like identity groups. Like, for example, the most prominent one, the most important one, I would say, is sexual difference. Like, we mm-hmm. have to think about men and women as at the level of nature. There is a distinction there. And that we was God's think, idea. That's, exactly. That's right there at right. the beginning. Right. Um, but then there's also the level of the individual human person, right? So we really need to resist this like us, them dynamic. I would say it's important to steward the voices that are in our head because we are so like human beings are so profoundly shaped by what we consume. Um, so in terms of like social media, in terms of news media, I mean, the most prominent voice in your head should be the voice of the Lord, right? So mm-hmm. you need to be primarily formed by by scripture, by the gospels, by prayer, um, and not by, you know, in- influences online or social media wars or whatever news media you inhabit. Because those sorts of things depend upon, like, disrupting our peace, right? Um, and I-, I think when our-, our culture is so polarized and so politicized mm-hmm. that if that's the discourse that's forming us, then we're going to lose sight of the person because we're just going to be caught up in, in kind of a culture war. So that's really good. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I think you made this point in uh, the article that you wrote last year on the Matt Walsh documentary, mm-hmm. what, what is a woman? Mm-hmm. And, uh, if I recall, you, you're largely appreciative of what it's trying to dismantle and the mm-hmm. critiques it's trying to make. But one, and I haven't seen it, and I know lots of people who have and really appreciate it, so I, I, I would expect that I would appreciate what that documentary, which has been free over the weekend, what it's trying to point out. Uh, and yet I think your a little bit of pushback was, one, it didn't quite answer the question, what is mm-hmm. a woman? And two, uh, this is to your point of dignity, that while there's... You know, there is a place for pointing out when arguments are ridiculous, there's a there's a place to to show that they're rid- ridiculous. And I think there's a place for satire. I think there's a place for exp- mm-hmm. but you sort of say it it 
can feel like we just want to be careful that we don't just set it up and say, ah, ha, ha, wow, I, I feel good. This is, look at how dumb people mm-hmm. are. And yeah. this is really going to be hard for for Bible-believing Christians. Uh, it's going to be really hard for, you know, you know, serious Catholics like yourself to make sure that while we point out that the ideology is often ridiculous or irrational, that the people, so the, the, uh, the, the ideas don't deserve our, our compassion, but the people certainly do. And that's going to be very hard to do at times. Mm-hmm. I want to come, come full circle, just a couple more questions, if you have time, mm-hmm. uh, along these lines. I do need to mention one other. I'm supposed to mention this mid-episode, but trust me, Abigail, we're, we're very close to being done, not mid-episode. But uh, just thank Desiring God, our other sponsor. Did you read any John Piper books back in your... Uh, I'm sure at some point, yeah. Okay. You know, but I think I might have read them in my like angry angry feminist Uh feminist phase and been like, yeah, Yeah. okay. Why don't you go back? So uh, (laughs) this is uh, to just mention John's look at the book online Bible study videos. John does these, uh, he's done it for so many books, and it's him doing word studies and doing grammatical semantic analysis. So go on there. You can find him, desiringgod.org, or on YouTube. Thank you to Desiring God. So I want to talk about come back, and uh, so you've come back, and you were received in the Catholic Church in 2014, grew up as an evangelical, and if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to probe a little bit to see what of those evangelical convictions you, you, you've regained or which ones mm-hmm. you haven't. So I got Ooh, two, good. Oh, this is okay, fun. two questions <laughs> in particular. You say at the beginning that you grew up with a you know, typical maybe, and, and maybe it was given, I don't know your, what church, and maybe it was in a, an overly rigid way, or maybe it was given in a not very—maybe an ahistorical way. But you talk about mm-hmm. the, you know, Male headship, female submission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, one, it. Do you see that that's biblical? Do you see? Do you? How do you resonate or, or or not with that? Mm-hmm. Because I would say, well, that's that's Ephesians five, rightly understood. Mm-hmm. And then, if uh, I can point out one thing that I I flagged in the book, it's a great book. But when you mm-hmm. said that Genesis, and I. I almost entirely agree with what you're drawing out of Genesis, but you said, oh, Genesis was, this was, the Pentateuch was put together sometime later during the Babylonian exile, and I wanted to say, no, no, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, so, you know, mm-hmm. what what did, um, you know, is that something you've, you've thought about? What role, one way to get at both of those questions is, what role now, as a Catholic since 2014, does the Bible play mm-hmm. in everything that you believe in what you're trying to to do and accomplish with all of your you know very impressive intellectual learning and you do a great job of dis- dismantling and understanding and you have a lot from um, from papal encyclicals appropriately so for your tradition mm-hmm. tell me about the role the bible plays mm-hmm. there's a good evangelical pastor question for you i love it love it um I, so I think that the the Bible plays an enormously important role, not only in this intellectual work, mm-hmm. but just in uh, my own personal spiritual life. So, you know, every morning I spend time in prayer meditating on the gospel for the day. So I, I think that in my life as a Catholic, um, my interaction with scripture has a lot is is more prayerful in a way mm-hmm. than it was so it's mm-hmm. not just about um analysis which i think has been helpful because i ha- i'm a very analytical person mm-hmm. so i love to just kind of you know you could tell like with genesis right yeah. like i'm like whew, you know parsing these verses and trying to get at like the deep meaning in them but i think there's also you know scripture is a way of hearing the voice of god mm-hmm. and so um in a in a prayer so I think the main difference, though, is that now for me, scripture comes in the context of an authoritative interpretive tradition, right? So it's not just up to me to interpret scripture, but rather I can enter into this interpretive tradition that not only has um, carried 
the canon of scripture, Mm -hmm. but also has shown us how to read it truthfully and how it should be interpreted, right? So I think that's something that's different. Um, Whereas, you know, when I was an evangelical, it was, it was a little more like, you know, you would kind of make your, you know, your best effort, like what you were even just describing, John Piper, it's like, get the best information you can, and make the best kind of prayerful and um, factual, you know, interpretation of a passage that you can. And then that's sort of like the best you can do, because then you you end up with these vying interpretations of scripture, right? So I found it to be very helpful to have an interpretive tradition to where if I'm looking at a verse, and I'm like, eh, it could be read this way. But then often there are resources in the tradition that help me kind of mm-hmm. integrate it into the full kind of picture. Um, so on that note, like, you mentioned female headship and female submission, right? So one one thing I would critique about the tradition I grew up in is a reading of the fall and how the relationship between men and women are described as prescriptive rather than a, a departure from the ideal that we now actually, through the grace of God, have to sort of wrestle with. Mm-hmm. Um, so this the line in Genesis 3 that your you know, that God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, mm-hmm. right? So I've seen that verse kind of plucked out and then imposed as this like God-normed ideal. And I think, and this again is speaking from not only my own take, but also just the interpretive tradition that um, that I have in the church is that that's actually, it's describing a consequence of the fall. So this is how a distorted relationship between the sexes will look like and how it will play out in the world, right? So then Ephesians 5, I think, shows um, a description of how when, like, through the grace of Christ, Mm -hmm. that fallen dynamic is restored, what it should look like, right? Um, So I I agree, like, when correctly interpreted, I, you know, I used to, you know, with Ephesians 5, I'll be like, this is so sexist, right? And now I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful, right? Um, So I think headship also needs to be understood more, I think, as generosity. Like to be a head, it's almost like to be a source. Like if we think about what it means for, say, in the Trinity, for the Father to be the head of the Trinity, right? What that means is really like this generative source of life, of everything, right? So what does it look like for, say, a husband in marriage to be this generative source that allows the full flourishing of everyone in the family. And that often looks like a kind of self-sacrifice, like a loving mm-hmm. self-sacrifice, right? Which is how he images, he images God. So um, I don't, I don't, I think it, it needs to be kind of rightly interpreted, um, but we don't need to be afraid of it. You know, I get frustrated sometimes when Ephesians 5 comes up in the lectionary and, you know, sometimes with longer readings, there's like, you can choose to read this right. longer reading or an excerpt. And sometimes people will like cut out the bit about women submitting to husbands and just read the thing about the husband. And that really frustrates me because I'm like, no, it's both and. Like you have to have that that reciprocity, right? Um, and and uh, yeah, so I think scripture is profoundly important. And that's why, in fact, I, I put so much emphasis on the text of Genesis, because I believe that it still speaks the truth about mm-hmm. who we are and what we're made for, especially its focus on sexual difference in those first few chapters. Um, so, That's a great answer. It's a great way to end it. I agreed with 85% of everything <laughs> you just said there. So we, yeah. um, we, we, we won't make it the, uh, the, the Protestant Catholic discussion on... Uh, but I will say this to... to uh, Agree that in in I think the the best of uh, a reformed or even just a Protestant understanding of Scripture that we try to make the distinction between sola scriptura, which is a Protestant affirmation that the final the final authority is the Word of God, and a a naive solo scripture or a nuda scriptura that all we have is the Bible by itself, a kind of naive primitivism that. You know, I think you said in, in your book that this sense that, you know, we just, uh, the early church happened, and then my church in Charlotte, yes. North Carolina happened, and nothing else really happened. We're just getting right back to, well, that's that's not possible, that's not practicable. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the best of the Protestant tradition wants to affirm that we read with a great 
cloud of witnesses, and we mm-hmm. read with the understanding of creeds and confessions and councils and and a great cloud of witnesses. And I'll just say, my so my middle child, Mary, um, we Protestants, we like the name Mary, too. It's mm-hmm. a good name. And her, her middle name is Ida Lett, which most people don't know mm-hmm. what that's from. It was John Calvin's wife. So there, you oh. could you could have you could have been a Protestant, and still, <laughs> it's just a different sort of saintly tradition. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you for mm-hmm. writing this book once again, uh, Abigail Favalli, The Genesis of Gender. Are you working on a new book? What What are your your writing pursuits these days? So I I have a book. I'm working on it in my mind, um, and I haven't really started actually writing it. But I am really in the Catholic tradition. We at least later in um, the legacy of John Paul II, there's um, language about the feminine genius, hmm. and so I kind of want to write a book about the masculine genius and the feminine genius. Like what what do these actually mean? What does fallen masculinity and fallen mm-hmm. femininity mm-hmm. look like? Um, what does redeemed and generative masculinity and femininity look like? And trying to to give so, a more substantive account that's beyond just again, like not just wanting to critique. Like I think this I think we actually have an opportunity as Christians right now to further develop our theology of sexual difference. Um, in ways that are are more about inviting people into right. this beautiful vision and not just kind of critiquing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Be- because it's easy to look out and think these are the worst of times, but you could also say that it's the best of opportunities because obviously people, there a lot of people are looking for something different. What was this this poll I just saw last week that less than 50% of Gen Z men think feminism has been good for our world or something, mm-hmm. or might have just been good for men. I forget that the, that question, mm-hmm. how you word it, makes a difference. But that tells us uh, people are sensing something's yep. not, not working, the answers yes. that are out there. And there's a reason, I say this all the time, there's a reason that young men in particular are, you know, from Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. To an Andrew Tate, who I don't recommend, you know, they're they're looking for somebody to give yeah. them a give. Can I be a man? What does masculinity yes. look like? Yep. And if if the church is not giving a beautiful picture of what that looks like, somebody else will give uh, a twisted view. Exactly. Of that. Yeah. Exactly. Which is which is the task before us. And thank you mm-hmm. for the work that you're doing. And uh, look forward, hopefully, to, to meeting in person sometime. I know yeah. we have uh, Carl Truman as a mutual friend, and we we'll oh, probably yeah, have, have others. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you. once again, the genesis of gender. And to all of our listeners, until next time, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book. Mm-hmm.